And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Here I am in 2017, that's when this episode was recorded, and I have to say I have been extraordinarily lucky this year to be able to get some incredible guests in the UFO field. Now why is that important this year, I bet you're asking? Well, 2017 marks the 70th anniversary of the largest explosion, pop culture-wise, not actual explosions, although we will get to that later. That is a beautifully crafted foreshadowing that I've just done there. Uh, It'll make so much sense at the end of the episode, but message at hand is 1947 huge uptick in the amount of sightings of strange craft in the sky doing things and moving at speeds that are inexplicable to human comprehension especially with the technology at the time uh this began um civilian sightings with the uh with kenneth arnold mount rainier sighting um battle of los angeles which we covered 70th anniversary of that but the one we're talking about today may be the most pivotal in human history itself. And I'm talking about the what is commonly known as the Roswell Crash, which Stanton Friedman, my guest today, uh, the godfather of ufology, the first civilian to actually investigate and really dig into uh, the Roswell Crash, which he calls the Crash at Corona. Now, why is this so important? Because it is very possible. And Stanton Friedman's investigation, much like a lot of my former, much like every one of my guests, his investigative abilities are just top-notch he is his investigative ability is a story in and of itself but what he possibly uncovered was if the roswell crash has any validity the greatest moment in human history which would be homo sapiens sapien human beings first contact with intelligent extraterrestrial life and whether or not you believe it's covered up whether or not you believe that that actually happened i want you to put all of that aside just for a minute If you're listening to the show, you already have an open mind, but I want you to open it even further. If you do not believe in the validity of UFOs, UFO crashes, or anything, I want you to put that aside for a second. I want you to listen to Stanton Friedman as we talk about the crash of Corona, and I hope that at the very least you will be able to kind of maybe think for just a second that all this is possible. Uh... So we are on the eve of the of the Roswell crash. It happened in early July, 1947. We don't know an exact date, but that is we are marking today the 70th anniversary of the Roswell crash. And I got to tell you, it's lucky enough to be able to get Stanton Friedman to talk about UFOs and Roswell, but to be able to get him on the show during the 70th anniversary, uh, I feel like the luckiest man in the world. If you can't tell. Uh, I I feel like I've hidden the giddiness in my voice pretty well, but if you you can't tell, um, I'm bursting at the seams here. So let's just get right into this with Stanton Friedman. Stan Friedman, lecturer, ufologist, uh, all-around nice guy. Thanks for being on the program today. It's my pleasure. So we're coming up right in the time frame of the 70th anniversary of the Roswell event. And I'm going to call it the Roswell event because... I don't want to give anything away. Uh, we're going to get into the Roswell details later of exactly what happened there. Uh, but the dates and times aren't exactly known, uh, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to make. And you, my friend, um, were co-writer for a book called Crash of Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell yes. Event, uh, which is an incredible book, by the way. Uh, it really outlines what went on there. And what I took away from that is that you were you, you were the first civilian to investigate this and also one yeah. of the most diehard and tenacious investigators that I've ever heard of. I mean, it's incredible. Stubborn son of a gun, they call it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no kidding. So we'll get into that a little bit later, but I want to talk about sure. how you got into ufology because many people consider you the godfather of ufology. Um <laughs> I, most people say great-grandfather. I'm calling you the godfather. It gives you a couple more years. Um, how did you get into this whole thing? 
Well, I, I'm a nuclear physicist. I was working in uh, industry on exciting, uh, eventually canceled programs. That's my history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Little companies, GE, GM, Westinghouse, McDonnell Douglas, Aerojet General, uh, TRW Systems. And, you know, I, when I started work for GE on the Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department in 1956, um, my dad had worked for the same company for 37 years, so I figured that's what I would be doing. And I checked, and I could retire when I'm 58, and they got lots of nuclear divisions. You know, this, this is my permanent home. And three years later, I saw the handwriting on the wall, and I decided I'm going to get out now while the getting's good because they weren't going anywhere. And I told people when I left that, uh, you know, I'm not sure this place will be here in a year or two. And 16 months later, the program was canceled. Anyway, uh, I was ordering books from a mail-order book place. I think it was Marlboro. And uh, I needed one more book. I'm a cheapskate. One more book so I wouldn't have to pay shipping. And there was the report on unidentified flying objects by Captain Edward Ruppelt, who headed Air Force Project Blue Book in the early 50s. Uh, this was in 1958. Uh so I got the book and several others, and it wasn't costing me anything because if I hadn't bought it, I'd had to pay shipping, and so I didn't have to pay shipping, so basically it was free. And I was impressed by the book. I wasn't convinced by it, but it was intriguing to me. And I was working on pretty far-out things. I was working on a nuclear-powered airplane, and this was no small program. One of the many mistakes people make who try to get into discussions about some of this is they presume research is what goes on at a university with a few professors and a bunch of grad students. Well, the General Electric Aircraft Nuclear Propulsion Department employed 3,400 people, of whom 1,100 were engineers and scientists, and our budget in 1958 was $100 million, which was a lot of money then. Oh. Uh, so it was a large program, and I did experiments at several different facilities. My specialty was radiation shielding. Uh, shielding is important for nuclear airplanes because you gotta, can't be too heavy to get off the ground, and shielding weighs something. You know? so yeah, yeah. It's important. It was intriguing, and we had money to do experiments with exotic materials and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, I read the book. I got interested. I shared it with a neighbor, Charlie, who was 10 years older than I was, uh, a good engineer. And I was impressed by the fact that Charlie was more impressed than I was because mm. I respected him. And it's funny, 10 years later, he came to hear a lecture I gave. I didn't give my first lecture until 1967. Um, and the <laughs> first thing he and his wife said was, we knew you when you didn't believe in flying saucers. <laughs> I was glad to hear that. <laughs> so it, it got me intrigued. And I moved to California uh, to work on another canceled program, <laughs> of course, uh, and the big event, an epiphany happened when I'd already read 10 books or so, and some of them were garbage. Uh, but what, what got me all concerned was discovering something that I didn't know existed. Project Blue Book, special report number 14. Biggest study ever done on flying saucers, done by the United States Air Force, under contract uh, with Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio. And a couple of things. None of the 10 books I'd read even mentioned the darn thing. And secondly, uh, it was a privately published version. You can't copyright in government documents. And there were several pertinent things. that The book was loaded with charts, tables, graphs, maps. I was in data heaven, over 200 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. Uh, they looked at 3,201 cases. That's a lot of sightings to go through. And one, the two important categories, well, important too, but uh, unknowns, they're the only ones we're interested in. The ones that resisted identification as conventional phenomena after careful investigation by professional scientists. Uh, a second category of great importance was insufficient information. And then there was uh, astronomical and aircraft and balloon and miscellaneous and stuff. So, okay. Uh, the report included a copy of the press release put out by the Air Force. And there were several strange things. One, it didn't say who did the work on the study. Two, it didn't give the title. Lubbock Special Report 14, surely somebody would have said, uh, what happened to 1 through 13, buddy? 
<laughs> you mm-hmm. know, we hadn't right. heard anything about them. Uh, three, the Secretary of the Air Force lied through his teeth. In this press release, which went all over the place, uh, October 25, 1955, um, they said, the Secretary of the Air Force is quoted as saying, that on the basis of this study, we believe no objects such as those properly described as flying saucers have overflown the United States. Even the unknown 3% could have been identified as conventional phenomena or illusions if more complete observational data had been available. Now, what was remarkable about that is I had a copy of the report, and I'm a data hound, and the unknowns weren't 3% or 4 or 6 or 10 or 12. They were 21.5%. Now, that is not 3 rounded off. You know, it's not about 3. We uh, rounded up to 21. 21 and a half. Yeah, 21 and in, in addition, there was a separate category, insufficient information, 9.3%. So by definition, the reports that they couldn't identify were not cases for which there was insufficient information, despite the comment by uh, Mr. Quarles, Donald Quarles, Secretary of the Air Force. And I don't like being lied to. I mean, I worked under security, and sometimes you you sort of have to tiptoe around the data, but flat-out lying like that? So it made me determined, this is in the early 60s, that I was going to find out more about this, damn it. Uh, As a scientist, I felt integrity was involved here. Because not only uh, stuff that I mentioned, they, for example, asked an obvious question. Is there really any difference between these unknowns and the knowns, these other categories? They did what is called a chi-square analysis. They cross-compared unknowns versus knowns on the basis of six different characteristics, apparent size, color, shape, speed, that sort of thing. It's a perfectly legitimate question. And the answer was rather surprising. On the basis of this study, it turns out that the probability that the unknowns were just misknowns was less than 1%. Hmm. That's not even close, in other words. The unknowns are separate, and that's what you're interested in is the unknowns. You know, the basketball coach says, look, I know most people aren't seven feet tall. Give me one guy. I don't care about the others. Right. Yeah, 99% won't fill the bill. It's that one guy I want, you know. (laughs) So it's the unknowns that we want, and here we got 21.5% completely separate from the ones for which there wasn't enough data and the uh, astronomical and aircraft and balloon and all these other things. So that study, and there's been nothing like it since, and they didn't distribute copies of the report. They put out the press release. So anyway, that got me rolling, and I got determined. I joined APRO and NICAP, the two big organizations, to get their newsletters and we set up a little group in Pittsburgh when I was working for Westinghouse on uh, nuclear-powered rockets. So, so this so Project Blue Book got you, got you hooked on ufology. Um, and then uh, through your research, is that how you kind of stumbled across uh, the Roswell crash? Well, okay. Because this is an I, interesting I got story. Interested in, I got interested in 58. In the 60s, uh, 1967, I gave my first lecture because... Uh, I had been in Indianapolis, got to know Frank Edwards, who wrote the book Flying Saucer's Serious Business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, when I went to Westinghouse in Pittsburgh, I called Frank. I said, Frank, you know everybody. He was a journalist, and he did know loads of people. Give me some names. I want to go public on this. So one of the people whose names he gave me was a producer of a radio show called Contact, believe it or not. Mm, okay. <laughs> on KDKA in Pittsburgh, which is the biggest station in town. And uh, I called, and it was one of those, don't call us, we'll call you. Well, less than a month later, and I'm sure to their surprise, they called me because somebody had canceled at the last minute. They called me at 6.30. Could I do the 7 o'clock show, please? (laughs) I didn't live far from the station, so I said yes. And that show was heard by a woman at Westinghouse who had a book review club, and they were reading Frank's book. And... She asked me if I would give a talk in her living room. That was my first lecture. Hmm. Sure, why not? So I did, and then I did the radio show many times more. Uh, And as a matter of fact, Betty and Barney Hill 
were coming to town. Oh, wow. Uh, and th- would you believe that people from the station called me and told me they were coming and told me where they were staying? Oh. That's very unusual. You don't normally give out you don't that normally do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they trusted me. So I called them, and we had dinner together. And I was very glad because Barney died less than uh, six months later. Did many other shows with uh, wow. Betty. But uh, I was so pleased to have the opportunity to meet the two of them. Because then I could check, see, what, did they say anything that went beyond what was in the book, The Interrupted Journey, and so forth. And, and just for the uh, record, so for people listening, Betty and Barney Hill is essentially the first documented case of UFO abduction. Yes, and it was an interesting case, partly because Betty was white, Barney was black. This right. was 1961. Right, right. Uh, these were gutsy people. Betty was a social worker. Barney worked for the post office, but also was on the Governor's Civil Rights Commission. Mm-hmm. Pretty special people. Yeah. And uh, also, if they want the updated story, they can buy the book Kathleen Marden is Betty's Niece. Mm. She and I have co-authored three books. One of them was Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO story. These are all listed at my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, real easy. And you can get them on uh, Amazon or any place. But, of course, if you get it from us, you get both our signatures. Well, so now let's talk about cause there's this really cool story on how you stumbled into the Roswell crash. Because essentially yeah, it, sure. was, it was kind of, I mean, it was, it was kind of an unknown. And I didn't, I, I, I didn't realize this until I, I hadn't heard about it beforehand. I mean, Frank Edwards mentioned it in one paragraph. Right. And it was in the newspapers, and, obviously. Pe- you know, people knew about well, it. Well, yeah, but I wasn't looking at old newspapers. Right, of course, of course. Uh, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I was uh, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to speak that evening at Louisiana State University. And the uh, students had arranged to take me to the biggest TV station in town, and I was supposed to do three different interviews. And I did the first two, and the third reporter was nowhere to be found. No cell phones back then, and mm-hmm. uh, this is 1978. And uh, so uh, the station manager's talking to me, he 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 knows I have things to do. Uh, he doesn't want to lose the interview because they had penciled it in on a certain program. But uh, and, and then he said something that changed my whole life. He said, "You know, the guy you ought to talk to is Jesse Marcel, brilliant investigator that I am." I said, "Who's he?" <laughs> His next sentence changed my life. Uh, he handled wreckage of one of those saucers you're interested in when he was in the military. What? You know, there was nobody else around. He was not joking. He was clearly serious. I said, well, what do you know about him? Well, he lives over in Homa. I didn't know where Homa, Louisiana was. I was there later to talk to Jesse, but uh, he's a great guy, World Ham Radio Buddies. You ought to talk to him. Okay, the reporter finally shows up, did the uh, final interview. Everything went great at the college that night. Big crowd. Again, no, no nasty questions or anything like that. The next morning, I was at the airport early, and I said, uh, I wonder if I can reach him. So back then, the audience may not realize, we used to call operators information, mm-hmm, right. you know, to get a number for somebody. Uh, you didn't have a computer, which is the easy way now. But uh, So I called information in Homa, Louisiana, wherever it was. And I got a number for Jesse A. Marcel. There was only one. And I told him I mentioned Bill Allen, the station manager, and that it had a clearance for 14 years. Uh, and he told me his story. And people say, why would he talk to you? Well, his name was in newspapers around the country. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, when you hear the story, he's, he's a quintessential part of this whole thing. That's what makes this story so amazing. I just want to, before you continue, I just want to make a point on this. This is like the beginning of one of those mysterious television shows because you're, you're doing one thing, <laughs> you know, you're doing the ufology thing, they got you on a TV station, and while you're waiting, some guy comes up and whispers in your ear, hey, I know... I know Jesse Marcel. You know, who's Jesse Marcel? And as you unravel the story, you realize that the guy you just accidentally interviewed, who's, you know, late in his life, um, handled one of the most historic moments in, in uh, human history. Yes. I mean, that's incredible, Stan. <laughs> that's such an incredible well, yeah, beginning to the right this place story. at the right time. How lucky can you get? I know. Uh, and I'd yeah. be remiss if and I didn't mention one of my good friends is from Homa, Louisiana. So that was really cool to see that. You're kidding. I'm, no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> it was kind of cool to see that in writing. Oh. I'd never heard it before, to tell you the truth. And uh, as I said, I was there. And the one of, one of the interesting things here, of course, is that Jesse was part of the 509th. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 
Air Force uh, bombing group. And uh, they were the only group in the world that had dropped nuclear weapons. Right. So that makes the nuclear connection a little bit stronger than it would have been for most people, you Definitely. see. And we're talking about the Hiroshima Nagasaki big boy. Uh, was it Little Fat Man and Little Boy? Uh, th- yeah, this whatever. Is, yeah, okay. whatever those are. But this is these are elite, you know, elite heroes in the in the world. War II. Yeah, that that's the point. That everybody had a high level security clearance. They were the only group in the world that had atomic bombs. They dropped mm-hmm. the two, uh, and they also dropped two more in Operation Crossroads in the yep. Pacific. Uh, so, very special people, and I had to respect that. I mean, I had security clearance. I'd had one for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I respected people and security clearances and nuclear groups. And uh, they don't pick Dinks to be the intelligence officer for the only atomic bombing group in the whole darn world. Mm-hmm. So I was impressed with Jesse. And, of course, later I met with him uh, when I was making the movie UFOs Are Real. Uh, good man. I met with his son who, who handled pieces of wreckage. He was a doctor. And would you believe Jesse Jr. got called back in? He'd been in the military, helicopter pilot, flight surgeon, got called back in at age 68 Hmm. because he was a flight surgeon. They were hard to come by. And he put in over 100 hours of uh, time, combat time, flying helicopters at age, well, by that time he was 69. Uh, he's gone now, died a couple of years back. But uh, I, I think I'm the only one who was in his house, which was uh, in Montana, Helena, Montana, and in Jesse's house in uh, Louisiana. Uh, you know, it, it not it, it's a small world and all that sort of thing. But I was very impressed with uh, both Marcel's. Can I pause you right here, Stan, for a second? Sure. So I think, so that's the beginning of the story, and I think to tell it properly, we now have to, so that's the four. We've got to flash backwards now, because I don't know if people know the story of the Roswell crash. So I'm going to yeah. outline in Cliff Notes versions what I happened. Correct me, we're going to get broad strokes in here, and then I'm going to let okay. you continue this story. So roughly around the early part of July, 1947, there's a lightning storm. Yes. Um, on, uh, there's a lightning storm. The next morning, yeah. uh, a rancher named Mac Brazel is out tending a, sh- a sheep, I believe, and comes yes. across a large debris field. And by debris field, I mean that there's just stuff across, I believe it's one to two square miles. Lots of stuff is out there. Very weird stuff. Um, nothing things, conventional. Nothing <laughs> conventional. Uh, so it looks as if something has exploded and is now laying all over the ground. So. He c- yes. collects some of this stuff, and it's like weird um, I-beams with, with writing on it. There's a, a type of foil that you can't crease, um, what, what people later called memory metal, all kinds of weird stuff. He collects yeah. this, and he doesn't know what to do with it. He's a rancher. He's an old-time cowboy, doesn't have a phone, doesn't get the newspaper, doesn't really know what to do. So he goes to local law enforcement. Um, Sheriff Wilcox is the one he talks not to. Not yet. Oh, no, not yet. What does he do then? Well, he go, goes to do his shopping at the little town of Corona, believe it or not. Okay. Uh, the general store. And like you said, no newspaper, no phone. He hadn't heard about all the fuss about flying saucers. The Kenneth Arnold's case occurred on June 24th. This is uh, July 4th, 5th, 6th, that time frame. And he brings some of this stuff with him uh, and shows the guys at the general store and one of them had heard that they had seen the news. They saw newspapers, and there was a reward being offered for a piece of one of these flying saucers. Oh, right. And somebody said, gee, you ought to take that and get the reward. And the rancher was not well off. He didn't own the ranch. He operated it, which is quite different. Mm-hmm. And so it was because of the encounter with them uh, at the general store that he goes in to the sheriff's office in Roswell, which is a much larger town that had uh, 40,000 people at that time, something Mm -hmm. like that, maybe. Big town. Roswell's in the middle of nowhere, I should add. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. And if if you're there, it's because you want to be there. Right. Uh, And now you want to be there because of the museum. Last year, the UFO museum had 204,000 visitors in Roswell. 
Well, it's biggest attraction in the state, and I say it's not on the way to anywhere. So if you're there, people bring their kids, their families, and I'm usually at my vendor table and give two lectures and do two panels and so forth. Mm-hmm. But people are seriously interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the the, the, the um, autograph on the book is important there. <laughs> They've seen me on YouTube, you know, right, right, the autograph right. kind of thing. So uh, they. Uh, they, the rancher uh, goes to the sheriff's office in Roswell, which is a much bigger town. And by prearrangement, the sheriff called the base. They had an arrangement. If there was anything that could influence public There's an army base right attitudes. next to in Roswell. The Army Air Force Base is in Roswell as well. I'm going to mention that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it's the only it's, – it's the base in the Air Force. Then it was the Roswell Army Airfield that later became Walker Airfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the Air Force didn't become a separate body right. until a little after this. Right, exactly. Anyway, which is actually important uh, to the story, as a matter of fact, the fact that the Air Force was not a separate division and it was part of the Army Air Force, uh, which that's becomes right. important later on politically. Well, oh, very important. Mm-hmm. So he goes to the sheriff. The sheriff calls the base. Major Jesse Marcel is on duty. It's a Sunday. Uh, goes and takes a look at the stuff. Colonel Blanchard, the base commander. Uh, tells him, uh, take one of the counterintelligence corps guys with you and go out to the, the rancher says, there's lots of this stuff lying around. Like I said, Jesse had served in the war during, uh, in the Pacific during the war. When an airplane goes in, it makes a mess. There's a big crater in the ground. There are pieces of this, that, and the other thing. There are wires and vacuum tubes and all, all kinds of stuff. It was nothing like that. This was clearly different. And Colonel Blanchard uh, the base commander was concerned about. Here we have the only atomic bombing group in the world who's spying on us. Right. Exactly. You know, a perfectly legitimate question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as it turns out, the, the Russians did have spies at Los Alamos. Uh, you know, Klaus Fuchs and the, remember the Rosenbergs? They got executed. Mm-hmm. Both him, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Rosenberg. You know, you don't often hear about. Uh, executions of women, but uh, Ethel Rosenberg was one of them. Well, the first, I guess. A- anyway, uh, Colonel Blanchard tells Jesse, uh, take the counterintelligence corps guy and follow the rancher out and look at this stuff. And the counterintelligence so guy is a man named Cavett, right? Uh, the other guy, yeah, the counterintelligence corps mm-hmm. guy. Sheridan W. Cavett. Uh, and so they... They stay overnight in their sleeping bags. This is in July. It gets hot out there. Uh, the next day, they see all this stuff. They fill up two vehicles with as much stuff as they could find, still leaving plenty of it out there, and they come on back. And it becomes clear that this is crazy stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, and because this is the only atomic bombing group in the world, and they are the only ones in the world who had atomic bombs at that time, this is something to be concerned about. And then when they looked at sort of foil-like material, very lightweight, weird. Like I say, nothing conventional, you know. Mm-hmm. So it became comes a matter for high security. And I better mention something else, too. Colonel Blanchard, uh, and he had... It had to be somebody to be head of the only atomic bombing group in the world, you understand. But mm-hmm. more importantly, he went on to be, he was a colonel, and went on to be a four-star general mm-hmm. chief of staff for the Air Force, separate body now, when he died of a massive heart attack at the Pentagon. Now, you don't get to be that without having gotten approvals from Congress, each of the stars on the general right. <laughs> ranks, incidentally. So we're not uh, – the, the debunkers on this case often leave out little details. I mean, Walter Howe was the guy who put out the press release. And uh, people – oh, he was just a dink, made up a story to get attention. They don't bother to mention he flew more than 20 missions as a navigator bombardier over Japan. And he dropped one of the uh, – instrument packages over one of those Operation Crossroads nuclear bomb tests. Now, you use your best guys to do that. Mm-hmm. We didn't have atomic bombs to spare. You know, it, it's a waste of a weapon if you don't get your instruments there. Right. So that says something for Walter Hout. And I found him, the good luck of the Irish, you might say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Uh, Bill Moore and I were looking, we saw newspaper articles. He had access, I was already living in, Canada, close to living in Canada, and Bill had access to the University of Minnesota Library. And uh, he found articles. Uh, I shared what Jesse had told me, and he found articles, and we started looking for people. Uh, and it mentioned that the press release was put out by Walter Hout, or Hout, or his name is spelled four different ways. And so uh, I looked up an editor and publisher. Was there a newspaper in Roswell? And what do I know, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and there was, and I called, and uh, what can we do for you? Well, I'd like to talk to the editor from 1947. Oh, well, he's long gone. What do you need? Well, I've got these stories here. It says a guy named Walter Hout, Hout. Before I could finish the sentence, she says, oh, his wife works here. What? Oh, wow. <laughs> so I talked to the wife uh, and then to Walter, and he was a great help. Uh, he had a base yearbook and uh, got me a copy of it. So in the next year, Bill Moore and I found more than 60 people connected with the base. Well, now I want to make a quick uh, connection here. I want to make a quick connection. Because um, just so we know who the, these people are, because one of the things that I've found as I've listened to the story over the years is I always had trouble figuring out who was who in the story. So... Colonel Blanchard's the head of the base, so they, they have this record, wreckage, and I think it, it was Ramey who actually gave the order to put out a press release, and Walter Howe, the guy you're talking about right now, is the one who put out the press release, which is the one that was, it was later in the day, it was picked up by, I think, papers west of the Mississippi, basically, out west, where that was well, the one that, that said... Best of Chicago and west, yes. Sure, yes. Uh, uh, but so basically said, like, the Army's recovered, and this is, you know, there, there's there's news footage of this. There's Army captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. That's the headline. Oh. Exactly. Uh, which is crazy. That was in the newspapers. Uh, it was on news reports, on radio. You can go and find all this stuff. It's very yes. easy to find. And so he's the guy who put out that press release. That's right. And mm-hmm. then... Uh, Later, after and he, Colonel Blanchard had ordered Jesse to take uh, Cavett with him and follow the rancher, and then they brought back pieces of the wreckage. So mm. uh, uh, it wasn't. And then Jesse flew to uh, Fort Worth, Texas, the headquarters of the Eighth Air Force, uh, Dallas Fort Worth. Uh, for those, this one airport that serves those two cities now. There used to be two. Anyway, uh, they. Jesse goes to Fort Worth, Texas. He gets ordered to fly the stuff. And there, General Ramey, who's head of the 8th Air Force, tells Jesse, you don't say anything. I'll take care of it. And so there were pictures taken with Jesse holding pieces of some wreckage that they brought in from a radar reflector mm-hmm. weather balloon combination. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the Army captures flying saucers, and then within uh, a day... Uh, General uh, kiboshes the story, mm-hmm. uh, and that was the end of it. And that it was made news for a couple of days. And that made oh, the, all over the place, right? Because because the 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 West made had the flying saucer, and then the next day they recanted, said it was weather balloon, and then that was picked up by the New York, you know, New York and Chicago, and then them recanting. Yeah, because the, the story balloon. came out too early for the morning, uh, too late for the morning newspapers uh, on the day before, exactly. so. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I hadn't heard about it, uh, except for the one mentioned in Frank Edwards' book. And there, he, as it turned out, he got several things wrong in the story. <laughs> right. But uh, it it became a chase to find more people. Like I say, we found 60 within the first year, uh, and then another 30 the next year. And, you know, military guys go all over the place, and it was nice to have Walter to ask, you remember this guy? And, oh, yeah, I think, and, and wives kept Christmas lists. Oh, wow. So, you know where any of the other guys were? Mm-hmm. You know. Well, remember, this is just after the war. The officers who stayed in, most of the military people got out at the end of the war. I mean, the war is over, three cheers for us, we won. Well, in this case... These were officers who stayed in, uh, full-timers, if you will. And so uh, we, the Cold War was already heating up. Uh, the Marshall Plan was in place. Half the world was starving. Mm-hmm. Uh, so these were tough times. And there was a draft, uh, which I somehow managed to miss. Well, I, I know why, but because uh, I was working on military stuff. 
that kept me out. Wow. Well, yeah, if, yeah, I was working for GE in a succession of companies and military contracts. Right. As I say, that was a big, uh, big job, the uh, aircraft nuclear propulsion program. And I worked on nuclear rockets and more darn canceled programs than anybody I know. <laughs> hey, I work in television. I've worked on plenty of canceled programs, man. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet you did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it, it became uh, what's interesting is. The debunkers uh, almost invariably leave out the important stuff. You know, who, who was this group? Who were these people? Uh, what were they doing? Why did they do it? Stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, but look, look, I don't want to focus. Just a made-up story. I, I don't want to focus on the debunkers because I think that this story has a lot oh. of merit to it. And I think what's amazing about this story is that, it, first of all, no one really know about it without you. And second of all, you've interviewed some incredible people. As I mentioned, as we quickly did the synopsis of the story, you randomly got in touch with the intelligence officer who was basically the first military man on the scene for this thing, and he was willing right. to talk to you. Um, and as you mentioned, this is the 509th. Everyone there is top secret. They have, they have top secret clearance, um, and they've all, they, they, know the, they, they know modern technology. They're the ones who are dropping yes. the most modern military weapons. So what if they didn't recognize it? They wouldn't have known. They would know what they saw. And if they said it was a flying saucer, yes. or if they said they didn't know what it was, how could they possibly have confused any of that stuff with a weather balloon? It doesn't make any sense. So we're going to go. Well, the, remember, the Air Force put out four explanations. Oh, First, it was a that. flying saucer. Then it was a, a radar reflector weather balloon uh, combination. And then it was Project Mogul. Right, I remember that. Mm hmm. Which is essentially the same thing, really. I mean, they're just that, that was and, just to detect high altitude with nuclear yeah. explosions from high altitude detector. It's essentially the same thing, essentially a weather yeah. balloon. And then I, I love the fourth explanation: crash test dummies. These stories oh, about yeah, small yeah. bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Uh, you know, even the New York Times called them that. And I talked. This picture is in the report that the Air Force put out. Uh, and I talked with Colonel Madsen, who was in charge of those experiments, the crash test dummy things. What, what people were doing, that may sound weird to people, what do you mean crash test dummies? Well, airplanes and jet planes were flying much higher than they used to. And if you're in an ejection seat, you want to know, i got to get out of this plane. Uh, my wing just got blown off. You know, how do I get out in a hurry? Well, the ejection seat, you, you got to test it without a person in it <laughs> several times. Right. And the idea was that uh, they didn't. I, I talked to the colonel who was in charge of the program, uh, Colonel Madsen. He was easy to locate. New Mexico is a small population state, and I had a breakfast with him in Albuquerque. And two important things: none of the tests were run until 1953. Uh, so you got time travel for crash test dummies to explain something happening in '47. And he stressed to me that the dummies were six feet tall and 175 pounds. They were to simulate pilots. And they were in Air Force gear. And the reason for that is not for show, but the drag on the – when you step out of an airplane at 40,000 feet, uh, one thing, it's colder than heck, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And secondly, the drag is dependent on, on what kind of clothing you're wearing. You know, so you 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 got to simulate this sensibly, otherwise it makes no sense. Also, now uh, when the dummies hit the ground, often an arm or a leg came off. As you can understand, they're made out of wood. Uh, so test dummies dropped all over the state, not near either of the crash sites, incidentally. <laughs> right. Well, you <laughs> no minor detail, you know. You know, there's a fifth explanation to this whole thing too. I mean, the crash test dummies is also weird, but I don't know if you remember, uh, Annie Jacobson wrote a book um, called Area 51. Oh, and Unfortunately, I do remember that, yes. Right, I so, read the book. I mean, and that was an even weirder story, which I believe she came to the conclusion. I mean, Joseph Stalin did have a very strange fascination with, 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 with uh, the Roswell crash, but um, I believe she said that they, that they actually found um, genetically engineered Nazi, or I'm not sorry, not Nazi, genetically engineered Soviet pilots, which is like one step up from from crash test dummies, which is also a very weird explanation. So six explanations. Well, yes, very, very, very weird indeed. These were genetically altered, and it was Dr. Death right. who had worked on those, the German guy, yeah. uh, a Nazi guy. So, so five explanations for this, for this, this event. I mean, that's, a, that's crazy. Yeah, 
But if you talk to anybody who was involved and you look at the uh, newspapers then, uh, you know, I, I talked to Colonel DuBose. Many of the pictures that show General, General Ramey show him with his, his adjutant, whatever you call it, Colonel Thomas Jefferson DuBose. And I had the bright idea. Gee, I wonder. I knew that uh, uh, General uh, Ramey was dead. I knew that uh, Colonel Blanchard was dead. I wonder if uh, DuBose is still around. I, I like looking for people with unusual names. You know, <laughs> Tom Smith. Don't ask me to find Tom right, Smith. Right, of course. Please. Too hard. <laughs> you, you've been there. Yeah, there's so many of them. So uh, I contacted, I figured he probably was West Point because many of the officers who were still in in 47 were West Point. And I called West Point and talked to their alumni organization. Yeah, he's still alive. Thomas Jefferson DuBose. Hmm. They didn't tell me where. He lives in Florida. They wouldn't give me an address, but it was easy to find. Then my folks were retired in Florida, so I made trips to Florida, and I visited him in person and, uh, you know, got the straight story. He took the call from in Washington, and he gave him three instructions. Get the press off our back. I don't care how you do it. Send some of that wreckage up here today with one of your colonel uh, couriers, and I don't want you ever to talk about it again. Do I need to put that in writing? No, sir. Mm-hmm. When a two-star general tells a colonel what to do, he does it. He, you know, say jump, you say how high. Mm-hmm. And some people don't understand this. But remember, this is 1947. And it's the military. Uh, and it's the military, and he was a, a pilot, and he was a colonel, and the Eighth Air Force, which was a, had the nuclear weapons under it. So uh, I located him, and he told me that standing three feet away from me. Wow. And he's on tape. We put together a, uh, well, now it's a DVD about uh, recollections of Roswell, 27 witnesses, I think, firsthand. Wow. They're all but one dead now, incidentally. Not surprising. It was 70 years ago. Years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, but I, I was so glad that I found DuBose to get first-hand information, not second, third, fourth-hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, when when, well, when that's was... all you can get, that's what you do. But uh, if you can get first-hand, well, Jesse I was Marcel very favorably was impressed. He was very first-hand. Jesse Marcel was, yes. I did talk to Blanchard's uh, daughter, who was a help to me, and mm-hmm. to two sons. So you get first-hand wherever you can, but... Uh, you got to cast a wide net. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a funny way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Military guys go all over, hither, thither, and yon, and it's mm-hmm. not always easy to find them. But uh, you take advantage of whatever you can. And that's where Walter Hout was a big help. He was instrumental in setting up the museum, mm-hmm. where I'll be in the first week of July for the 70th anniversary special <laughs> festival. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the The place will be jumping with people there. Uh, and I, I think that there's a political little aside. When Lyndon Johnson was elected president, uh, New Mexico didn't vote for him. So not too long thereafter, after he became president, he closed the base in Roswell. Oh, and wow. where did he move it? To Texas, of course. Surprise. Now, that beat the heck out of the town because there were a lot of people who worked out at the base. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very tough on the town. So it seems only fitting and appropriate that they benefit from this uh, onslaught of visitors, visitors, uh, tourists, whatever you want to call them, uh, to Roswell. I agree. Uh, I agree completely. Ironic? What's the word? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, look, it's fitting. Um, now let's get it because we're, we're coming short on time here, and I want there's there's a couple of things I okay. still want to get to. So we're talking about a debris field. People have picked this stuff up. One of the things that that I was always curious about with this, and then it gets answered in the book, um, the crash of Corona, um, is that you know, you're talking about a debris field, but there was they said they found a flying saucer, and the only time I ever saw that mentioned was in the um, was in, in the news report. But in the book, you say that people that that people actually did recover a saucer a mile and a half away from this debris field. So the thought was something exploded in the air, and then a flying saucer actually did crash. Um, And then there's one other part to that story, but I want to make sure that I'm I'm correct so far with the facts. Well, yeah, and and, uh, apparently my first conversation with Jesse, he told me there had to have been a meteor explosion for two reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was no crater. Right. And he'd seen 
places where airplanes had crashed and it leave a big leap a big hole in the ground. And second, because of the very wide spread of the debris. Uh, if it just hit the ground, you don't get the debris over hundreds of yards away, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was very important to the story. Uh, and because I think uh, I also was the first to hear about a second crash uh, in the plains of San Augustine. Mm -hmm. And that's being disputed by some people. And I'm, I did a lot of checking on that. And it's discussed in the book. Yes. And I, my suggestion for what happened and it's only a suggestion, mm -hmm. is that uh, I know from newspaper articles that the they were expecting to launch a rocket on that Saturday, uh, July the 5th, I guess it was, um, at White Sands Missile Range, which is also in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And at that time, you had only uh, vacuum tube radars. You know, you left them on because you didn't want to have to warm up the tubes. They, right. they, were, they were on. The and so days, we know that... Vacuum tubes. Yeah. yeah. And when your television set went mm -hmm. on the whack, you took out the bad tube and you <laughs> right. took it into a store and replaced it. Exactly. People look at me when I, I said, one guy said, what do you mean? Yeah. Replaced it? Well, they had tubes and if the light wasn't on, the tube wasn't working. Exactly. That's how it worked. <laughs> this is 1947. Yeah. And, and so... Uh, I'm suggesting there might have been a mid-air collision. Mm. And I talked to an air, retired Air Force general who had been base commander at Wright-Patterson, incidentally. I said, when you have a mid-air collision, uh, is the damage usually the same to both vehicles? And he said, no, usually one makes it and one doesn't. So in this case, you know, one explodes over the, the corona site and the, the planes of San Augustine crash. When I heard about that. That one came down I'll say intact, a mess, but intact. Uh, and that one had a, a gash in the side. So, you know, it sounds to me reasonable. If more than 40% of the cases, there's a whole book about uh, sightings in 1940, uh, and 40% of the cases involve people seeing more than one object at the same time. Pilot and a wingman, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's the way we do things. So I'm suggesting there was a veneer collision one came down over here, one exploded over there, came down in pieces. Well, and, so hold on, let me understand, uh, yeah. I just want to understand this correctly. So, so you're, that's a really interesting theory, by the way. I didn't even think about that. We're going to get, hopefully, if you can stick around, we'll talk about the San Augustine in a separate little bonus episode. Um, uh, but but the, the, So you're saying that there was a mid-air collision between two craft, and in actuality, what we consider to be the Roswell crash what a flying saucer was not recovered only it exploded basically into debris and nothing was really recovered from like I think solid there was items. a com I think there was a crew compartment okay uh, so there wasn't a, know, it wasn't really a saucer recovered at the Roswell crash no it was pieces plus okay, large the crew pieces. compartment that was at least a mile away got it well, because in the book it also mentions that there were bodies that were discovered at that, or, or is that is that conflating yeah, with the San Diego, the Roswell at, crash? Yeah, but a mile or plus away from right. the debris field. Right, 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 right. Because that's where um, a guy named Glenn Dennis comes in, which is uh, he's a kind of an interesting story too. Um, let's can you talk about him really quickly? Because this this enters into well, yeah, like, he the, was an he was an undertaker in town. And uh, Walter Howard, I kept asking Walter who else in town might know something, and he mentioned that maybe Glenn does. He was around at the time. So I contacted him, and it was funny. It was Billy the Kid days up in Lincoln, New Mexico, and I got somebody who, uh, Bob Shirky, who was a, a pilot, to drive me up there for this event, and Glenn Dennis was running that at one of the hotels. And so I was the first to talk to him in any length. He was an undertaker at the Ballard Funeral Home. And they got a call from the base, more than one. Uh, what do you do if you have bodies out in the desert without any other details? And uh, Glenn, uh, unfortunately, there were plane crashes, and he had to go out and mm -hmm. recover the bodies from the crashes. Because he worked stuff, for a company so. that was contracted by the Army. So basically, when any of that stuff happened, he was the mortician. They were the company that got yes. called out to this. So this wasn't the unusual Ballard that Funeral the Army Hall. called him, right? 
Ballard Funeral Home. No, Ballard Funeral Home. And he was, uh, well, base was a big base. There were lots of people. Sure. And there were, people died, and there were accidents, and, you know, uh, and there were plane crashes, too. <laughs> so they, he has these conversations, and they don't give him any details, but they asked about, you know, getting small caskets. How long does it take to get small caskets? You know, you don't keep a store of caskets around. Mm-hmm. Russell's a small town. There aren't uh, tens of people dying every day, kind of. Right. Thing. <laughs> you'd hope you'd hope that so, there aren't people that require small caskets getting killed all the time. That, that's Very right. Morbid and thought. so, I talked to him and I met with him again. Uh, I was very favorably impressed with Glenn. Good guy. And he, look, I asked, when I'm in Roswell back then, when I was doing this uh, close-in research, if you will, I, you'd talk to people and you'd casually mention uh, Walter Howe. He ran an art gallery, he sold insurance, very well thought of. Uh, and I asked people about, you know, it may sound funny, but undertakers have to have a pretty good reputation in town, too. Well, they do, of course. You know, because yeah, privacy and, and all that sort of stuff. Sure, and of course. You have to handle people. Yeah. Well, loved ones. I mean, you wouldn't want to give your grandmother to someone who you didn't trust and yanking out the, you know, the that's gold right. foil fillings and stuff. That, that's right. And so uh, the people that I talked to were well thought about. I didn't just presume they were telling the truth. I would casually ask. And, you know, it's funny. If you ask somebody, I'm starting my research in the late 70s, you understand. Mm-hmm. And you know that this person was at the base because he got the base yearbook. And you remember anybody else who was there and where he is now, if you find somebody? Oh, you know, it's a long time ago. And then you, you get them talking. And after five minutes or so, you mention Colonel Blanchard and Jesse Marcel mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. other. And suddenly the guy will say, oh, how about Joe Smith? Mm-hmm. He right, was there right. at the time. Right, Last yeah. I heard, he was living in Omaha. You know, it's funny. If you can get people to relax, and how many of us think about things that happened 30 years before, you know? Right. Uh, it's true. not an everyday kind of thing. Which is, that, which is funny, because you started this investigation 30 years after the fact, really. Yeah. And again, as we yes. mentioned, this is not something that was a big news story. You're kind of uncovering these facts for the first time that the Army very much wanted to keep, you know, buried. They put out two big reports, the Roswell Report and uh, Truth versus Fiction in the New Mexico Desert. And they said, that's all we're going to say. This is it. Well, a year later, they came out with another report. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> this was about the uh, crash test dummies. Uh, look, there's no question that governments have been lying. Uh, it wasn't just uh, Secretary of Air Force quarrels. Uh, there are many instances where they were lying. And, you know, as somebody who had a security clearance for 14 years, I can understand that. If the mm-hmm. boss says, these are the rules, folks. Right. And people said, well, why why wouldn't you tell anybody? I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to serve in prison. Releasing classified information to people who don't have a need to know and an appropriate clearance is against the law. It's not something you take casually. Uh, once I needed slides for a presentation, a classified presentation I was getting, and they weren't giving, and they weren't ready. And so the security people say, you'll have to take them yourself. But here are the rules. And I'll tell you, I was so glad to get rid of that stuff. It stays with you. It's not in the trunk of the car. If the plane crashes, we need your itinerary. We don't care about you, but we want to recover <laughs> the classified. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was glad to get rid of that stuff. But I people say, well, surely these People, uh, Operation Majestic 12, for example, would have told their wives what they were doing. Of course not. I never told my wife anything classified. I can't control what she says. Mm -hmm. Right. No, exactly. You know, casually. And there are spies. I hate to tell people, but loose lips sink ships was a true expression. I believe it. I totally believe it. You know. Well, then let's, let's, because we're running out of time here, I want to get one more yep. point in before we finish up uh, th- this. Um, so with, with Glenn Dennis, he's a mortician. This is important. I didn't just bring it up because he happens to be a mortician. The Army was asking a no. lot of strange questions um, about bodies being out in the desert. How do you, you know, how do you take care of them? How do you preserve them and everything? But then there was an event with him 
where because as you mentioned he we, he had a contract with the base it wasn't unusual to see him things happen it is the army you know he was people knew him he had access to the base yes. and on this day when this stuff was brought back um he made his way during a, a very hectic event do you want to recount that well yeah there was a, an airman who'd been injured in an accident and the ambulance driving driving was usually done by the hearst operators you know double duty this happens still today in a lot of places mm-hmm, definitely. and so he brought this the guy into the base hospital and there was a, he knew a nurse uh, in the hospital and he went in to see her and she uh, said what the heck are you doing here you better get out of here and there was an officer there who threatened him uh you know, and he explained that he was there on business, uh, taking a sick airman and stuff. And uh, uh, and then he met with her for lunch, and she said that uh, there had been a crash, and there were these strange bodies, and they smelled like heck. And uh, uh, she was told not to say anything. And she described, she drew a little sketch. And that wasn't very long that she wasn't at the base anymore. Mm-hmm. She was sent off. But Glenn had kept his mouth shut. I mean, let, let's face it, uh, undertakers do normally have a means for keeping their mouth shut. You know, they're, they're privy to all kinds of personal stuff. And you don't stay in business very long if people think you're talking about the bodies you involved. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, I mean, it begs one question before we finish here. And this is, you know, partly my curiosity for the story, but also partly my curiosity <laughs> as an interviewer. You know, you, you, you've made a lot of very pointed comments about security clearances and that people don't talk and all this stuff. And yet, you managed to get, as you just mentioned, a mortician to talk, a high intelligence officer, the, you know, the general who oversaw the base. Um, how did you get them to talk about this? Not only, cl- we're not talking about just classified information about the Soviet nuclear program. We're talking about what, if this is true, we're talking about one of the, the most definitive moments in human history which is contact with another intelligent species um, life form how did you get them to talk about that well i think usually it's because they thought everybody else was dead <laughs> you know, or that they were dying when i talked when, <laughs> when i talked to dubose he was in his mid 80s wow uh and so and uh, you know, you can see this is so many years later. They figured everybody who mattered was gone anyway. Who's going to talk about it? You know, and I'm so glad that they did. Um, Walter Howard in particular, and like I say, it helped found the museum. Uh, it was such a surprise to find him. He came from Chicago. What's he doing thirty years later in Roswell? You know, he likes it there. That's why. Hmm. But, uh, you know, and the whole, most of the cast of characters was gone. And Blanchard was dead and so forth. I, I made an effort to find somebody who wasn't dead. It's much easier to talk to them. I don't know how to talk to the guys on the other side. <laughs> wow. That is, so that's the secret. Get people on their deathbed or make sure everyone else around them has died, and then they'll spill their guts. That's your secret? Well, I think so. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, they, they can look. Let me give out my website, sure. www.stantonfriedman.com, and I autograph all the books that get sent out. I can verify uh, that. I have an autograph book of yours. Good. Uh, Thank you very much. And uh, I do, uh, I answer my own phone. That surprises people for some reason. I'm a one man operation. <laughs> yeah, it surprises me. Well, uh, well, hey, I do want to say that we, we have ba- barely. And when I say barely, I've said this a lot, but we have barely scratched the surface of this incredible story. Um, you know, your, your, uh, the book you gave me was Flying Saucers and Science, which kind of outlines, it's kind of like a, more of an overall book for all the different yes. types of, of UFO and, and related phenomenon, which is a very interesting, it's a great introductory book. Uh, then I also read um, The Crash of Corona, which I got to tell you, if you like the Roswell incident, and again, I want to stress this, you are the guy who kind of broke this case open, the first yes. person to investigate it, you know, 92 people you interviewed by 1986. That book is just incredible, um, which I think you co-wrote with Dan Berliner, is that right? Don Berliner? Don Berliner, Don Berliner. yeah. He was an aviation uh, writer. Uh, yeah. Yeah, very well written. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in there, so I highly recommend it. 
Um, StantonFriedman.com is where you can get all these things, buy them for the same price you would anywhere else, but you get the signature, which to me makes them invaluable. And I do sign the books, and the books by both Kathleen Martin and myself, we both have signed them. We use uh, signature plates, you know. That's incredible. Uh, well, Stan Friedman, uh, again, thank you so much on the eve of the 70th anniversary. Um, you're doing great work. Uh, this is an incredible story. Probably one of the most definitive stories in human history, despite the fact that it's completely classified and covered up. Uh, but, I mean, this is, you are, uh, you are an American hero, and I don't say that lightly or with sarcasm. So thank you for all your work on this. You're very welcome. I don't know if I consider myself a hero, but a hero, but I am dedicated to the truth. And when I find it, I'll talk about it. <laughs> you sure will. Um, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glenn co-production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E. A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Go to fascinatingnouns.com to listen to every episode or to follow the show on social media. You'll find links to the show's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages at the bottom of the Fascinating Nouns webpage. And you can also subscribe to the newsletter, which will tell you about upcoming guests and brand new projects. And if you never want to miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Google Play. And check out all my other projects on Daniel J. Glenn. Dot com. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.